Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org slash library. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Music History Project. We are super excited about today's episode as we celebrate the great retailer in Memphis, Tennessee, Amro Music. Uh, I'm particularly excited about this because, honestly, I feel a part of that family. Um, Every time I go there, I feel like, hey, this is my home away from home. And I do really have this sneaking suspicion that by the end of this episode, you guys are going to feel the exact same way. Uh, This uh, company has been owned and operated by the same family since it was started in 1921. And we have interviewed four generations, or we should say we have four generations in the collection. And what's really, really exciting to me about this podcast is because of the interviews uh, at the uh, NAM Oral History Program, talking about this particular store, we uncovered a factoid that even some of the current management did not know until recently. So I'm very excited that we're going to include that at the tail end of this podcast, a little teaser. But uh, thank you guys for joining us. I'm really excited about this. Yes, me too. We are going to be hearing from some amazing people. Um, And that family that started Amro Music is the Averwater family. Among them, we'll be hearing from Mill, Robert, Chip, Pat, CJ, and Nick, and some other voices we're going to hear today are Vernon Drain, Trish Montgomery, Sandra Miller, and Booker T. Jones to close it out. Yeah, and I have to agree with you, Dan. Um, After listening to all of their interviews, I feel like I'm part of their family, and I've never (laughs) personally met any of them, but I want to now. (laughs) I want to go down to Memphis and say hi and and chat with them more. such a great story and amazing that they've, I mean, they've been in business now for a hundred years and it's still family run and operated. That's not many places can say that. Uh, So what we're going to listen to first is actually uh, the current vice president of Amro Music. uh, That's Nick Averwater. Kind of give a brief lineage of, uh, of the family, just so you guys can kind of understand who started it and where it went from there. Uh, You might want a pen and paper just to draw that quick family tree. (laughs) Uh, you can cross them off as you go through. Uh, and then thanks to um, an interview that Chip Averwater actually did, uh, we have uh, Mill Averwater talking about founding Amro Music and uh, and just kind of the beginnings of the company and some of the ups and downs he experienced in the beginning uh, and some really great insight that we would not have had had Chip not donated that. So that's much appreciated and, and kind of completed our full generations Definitely. Of, uh, of that. So uh, here is Nick doing a quick lineage, and then we're going to go right into the audio uh, interview of Mill Averwater. Mill was my great-grandfather, and he founded the company in 1921. And then he had a couple of kids that got involved in the business. And so you have Joy, Ronnie, and Bob, or Robert, all were involved in the business. Now, Joy and Ronnie's kids did not participate in the business. And so the company continued through Bob and his two sons, Pat and Chip. 
of course, um, Pat was the, the chairman and very involved there with NAM and was here at AMRO uh, for an, a number of decades as, uh, as or Chip was, excuse me. And then Pat is still here involved at AMRO. So Chip is CJ's um, father and Pat is my father. So Pat and Chip were brothers, generation number three, and CJ and I are generation number four and we're cousins. So Mill... Bob, Pat and Chip, Nick and CJ. I moved to Memphis. I had a partner by the name of Frank Marmon who had a hard time talking him into coming to Memphis, but he finally did and he's only stayed a short time with me and he went back to Cincinnati. And I carried on for about seven years and then I decided to open a store in the Atlanta. Really, it was a music studio. It wasn't a store. Until about 1931, we were forced to close it due to the Depression. Do well, you want to go any further than that? Yeah. Well, during the time we were in Memphis, while we uh, rented for a few months, then uh, we decided to build our own home, so we built a duplex with two floors at 520 North McNeil. In later years, while well, we traded that in for a piece of property in Hyde Park, and then we sold that property in Hyde Park and moved over to the Parkway House. Oh, let's see, well, I was in business. While we were in business, we started on Main Street in three different locations. Not at one time, but we were forced to move during the Depression because we couldn't pay the rent, so we moved three different times. Then we moved up on Madison Street. And we spent several years there, and we moved back to Monroe. And. Uh, there we decided to buy out Worsley and Company and uh, from then on we carried on until we began opening the other stores, the branch stores. The first one was at East Door, the next one was at Whitehaven, and the following one was at Raleigh. When we started our business on Main Street, In the way of advertising, we used to open a window and play the piano out of the window, attract customers that way, and bring them up and enroll them. Then, of course, we were new in towns. So we went to the newspapers. We got quite a few write-ups. And in those days, the newspapers were even having a hard time. So I went to the editor of the press cemeter and talked him into uh, writing us a story and in remuneration for that why uh, we would pay him a certain percent of each one of the students that came in through this advertising. Then we went to radio and uh, we did a lot of playing, a lot of entertaining over radio and finally we made the same arrangement with the radio that we could uh, each time a 
customer came into the store, or rather a, a uh, student that would enroll, we paid the radio station a certain commission. And all during that time, of course, we were putting on our own programs and advertising, you see, during that time. And there was a radio station that opened out on Poplar Street. A man by the name of John Ulrich ran it and owned it. It was called uh, WMPS. Now, Sam Goldfarb was connected with that, and he was the engineer and the operator of the station. And we did quite a few programs out there. The fact is we had programs every day in a way of advertising to bring people into our store. Well, I decided that I was going to branch out and open up these studios throughout the country. And so the first branch was in Atlanta. And we operated in Atlanta for approximately three years and then the depression hit. So we decided we'd close the place and move back to Memphis where I had my own home and had my own, built my own home here. And so that was about all for Atlanta. You don't want to hear the experience that I had with the, with the stew down or anything like that. <laughs> well, what'd you do with the studio? The studio, we were, uh, we turned it over to one of the lady teachers there, and she operated it a short time, was forced to close due to the depression. So there's no longer a studio under the name of AMRO in uh, Atlanta. Of course, we named it AMRO Music Store, or AMRO Studio, I should say, down in Atlanta while we were there. So. That's where the name came from? In Atlanta? No, the name came originally with our two names. For an example, my name was Ava Water. We knew that the name Ava Water was a little bit too long. People would forget the name very easily. And this partner of mine was named Mormon. So uh, we used the first two letters of my name and his name, and then formed two more letters, which were musical terms for the sharp name of Amro Music Store. We know it would come under, in the uh, city directory, it would come first amongst the A's, and the phone directory under A's as well, which was an advantage, you know. When you turn to the telephone sheet and you look for music studios, you'd see Amro first, see? Mm -hmm. So that's where the name originated from. Well, isn't that great to hear the voice of the founder? This is really, really cool. I have to pause here for a minute and just say, I really wish that I was around and this program could have started in 1901 when NAM started, but I'm not that old and uh, that wasn't possible. But what has been possible, thanks to people like uh, Chip Avalwater, is we have incorporated in our collection here at NAM some interviews that have been recorded before this program officially started in 1999. And uh, Chip, 
Uh, just a shout out to you, my friend. It was such a great insight for you to have sat down with your grandfather to talk about how the store got started, because now all these years later, we get to hear that and then put that along with your dad and your story and other stories uh, to help all of these uh, listeners today really appreciate and understand the rich history of your company. So I'm really just um, so grateful for that insight of you sitting down in 1978 with your cassette player and recorder and, uh, and talking to grandpa, because that we're all appreciating that right now. And uh, as pointed out, uh, I was only 11 when you did that, so I couldn't have done it myself. But um, uh, I'm so glad that's part of our collection now. So with that, uh, let's continue with the uh, podcast and the progression of the story now that we heard from the founder. Yes. So next up, we are going to be hearing from Robert Averwater, who is the next step in the lineage of Averwaters and Amro music. And he's just going to be talking about what it was like when he came into the business um, and the progression of Amro's amazing life, I guess you could say. <laughs> so here is Robert Averwater. Was it a hard transition for you to get back after, uh, after the service? Not really. Uh, you know, I knew immediately where I was going when I got back home. So I uh, went back to college immediately and then uh, worked part time at the store whenever I had the chance. And uh, <laughs> uh, that started me on that collection. Uh, that was a tough part of the job. I never liked that, but of course, I always had to do it, but uh, he would give me half of everything I collected. So he would bring home a list of the bad accounts that had not paid in some time. And uh, I would go out in the evening and try to collect those. And so it gave me a chance to learn a little bit of money while I was going to college. So uh, anyway, uh, I finally graduated from that. <laughs> and when I went, when I went in to full time, uh, I can remember starting out right at the very bottom. I swept the floors and uh, naturally continued handling bad accounts because I had so much experience in it at that particular time. And uh, I, I guess, uh, I don't guess it would hurt to mention one particular account that I worked that was slow pay. Um, what do you think about that? Should I mention names? This, this, this person is quite well known today, but uh, I worked a, a bad account named B.B. King. Believe it or not, I would love to meet B.B. today and intend to one of these days and come back and reminisce a little bit with him. But I remembered going to his house and uh, he had no money. Things were really tough in those days and he was scrapping to, you know, break into the music business back then. So he didn't have any money. So I said, where is the guitar? And he told me we got in the car went over there and picked it up, and I carried it back to Amro and would give anything to have it today, but I don't know what happened to it. 
But I hope B.B. doesn't mind me uh, mentioning his name in this. I intend to reminisce with him one of these days about that. <laughs> but I had qu quite a few experiences with, with the bad accounts. Uh, when I would go uh, on vacation, I would always check the ledgers at that time to see where the bad accounts were if they had moved away. And we had one in particular, I remember, it moved to Longview, Texas. And so my wife and I headed out that way on vacation and made it a point to pass through Longview, Texas. So we looked up this particular person who had a flute. And never will forget that day, knocked on the front door and the lady came to the door and I told her I was with Amro Music Store. Her eyes got about that big. <laughs> and so I told her why I was there. And so she had, didn't have any money to pay for it. And so I told her I had to pick the instrument up and carry it back to Amro. And we would hold it for her until uh, she could send in the money and we would mail the instrument back to her. And so she agreed to do this. And her last question was, as I left the front porch, did you come all the way out here to Texas to pick up that instrument? And I had to tell a little fib. I said, yes, ma'am, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I had several instances like that. We were, of course, I was working under Dad's direction at that time, and he was a stickler for collecting those bad debts. If a person owed him money, he wanted his money. <laughs> And so I got quite a, quite a bit of experience doing that. I've knocked on doors and had people not answer and walk around to the back of the house and see them monkeying around back there doing something, waiting for me to leave, you know. And then I would really pound on the door. I would let them know that I had seen them and they'd have to answer. So I had a lot of strange experiences with that. Dogs biting me and everything else, you know. But that was the hard part of the music business, uh, but certainly a necessity, and, and uh, I did a great deal of it. In fact, I think I did most of it from probably from that day on. Really? Yes. Until I retired. I, I can't say that the day I retired, I still made some calls, but <laughs> it was almost that bad. <laughs> Well, I bet you became good at it. I, I think I was quite good at collections. I had one bad experience I need to tell you about, though, here in Memphis. This, these days go way back when uh, uh, money was tough, and a guy owed us $6. Now, can you imagine my dad sending me out on a call for $6? But this guy operated a little honky-tonk, restaurant sort of thing. And I went in there, and uh, uh, he was standing behind the cash register. And there was a lot of activity in there, a lot of smoke and a lot of drinking and a lot of carrying on. And so uh, he was at the cash register, so I told him who I was and why I was there. And he says, I don't have any money. And I looked in the cash, the drawer was open in the cash register, and I said, 
Well, it looks to me like you made a little money today. It looks like you'd want to settle this debt and get it off of your mind. So why don't you just pay me the $6? He said, I'll tell you what. And he reached over and picked up a butcher knife. And he says, reach in there and get your $6. And I said, no, thank you. I think I will uh, forget about it. So I left. Went down the street, and there was a squad car parked there, and I went to him, and I said, I've just been threatened with a butcher knife. And so he said, well, I can't do anything about it until he cuts you. And I said, well, thank you, sir. Goodbye. And so we lost $6 there. <laughs> but I must say, we were tough on bad accounts. We... Uh, we didn't lose many of them, I'll have to say that. But anyway, uh, uh, after the war, band instruments become, became more available. And uh, so uh, I came into the business. And uh, so at that particular point, uh, the business really continued to grow. And, and uh, my father hired other people. Uh, I understand you're gonna talk to Vernon Drain after a while. Uh, he came about the same time I did, and uh, he had been teaching some lessons there uh, for a while, And uh, but he was put on the sales floor. We had four salesmen working the road. My dad worked it, I worked it, Vernon Drain worked it, uh, and my brother Ron worked it. So we kind of split up the territory. Each of us went our separate ways, and Amro began to grow. Um, and you had mentioned pianos a while ago. Um, we had talked for many years about going into the piano business. And one day we heard that Worsley Piano Company was thinking about going out of business. So Dad and I went up to see him and talked to him at length about the business. And yes, he had decided that he wanted to retire, but just not quite yet. And Bill Worsley loved to fish, and I loved to fish. And Bill Worsley and I became close friends, and we would fish together whenever possible. And so when he finally decided to sell the business, we kind of had a little in with him where uh, he was going to sell to us because there were several others around that thought they were going to buy it. But uh, finally, uh, Dad and I purchased it, and uh, so we became the proud owners overnight of about 75 or 80 pianos and uh, maybe 25 organs. And so suddenly we were in the piano business. <laughs> You had to learn that quick, huh? Had to learn it in a hurry. We were very fortunate. So we've grown to, to be the largest uh, music store in the Mid-South, I guess, and uh, certainly one of the finest. Uh, we've watched a lot of stores go out of business here. Uh, our competition was pretty keen at first. Uh, we had uh, uh, Melody Music Shop was one of the places that, that 
closed up. Their employee, Coley Stoltz, opened up his own business, incidentally, right next door to ours. Uh, his was a band instrument business. And then uh, we had Bond Music Store, which was band instrument business. And so we had plenty of competition in Memphis. And uh, of course, we had lots of competition in the piano business as well. Okay, how? was established back in the 1800s. And uh, so we had them, and we had the Hollenberg, and uh, Stuber Piano Company, and uh, several other smaller companies. And they closed one by one, which enabled us to take on the Steinway line and the Somer line. And uh, we took on uh, the Kimball Piano line, and we did quite a business with Aeolian, who had Iverson Pond Company here in Memphis. So, uh, uh, and then, or oh, something that really drove us crazy was putting in computers. Oh, brother, that was <laughs> that was tough. I'm telling you, we hired a lady to come in from Florida to help us set up our computer system and. She had set up one or two down there in Florida. So she came up here and uh, uh, started putting in the system. And uh, we had a couple of ladies in accounting that were getting older and they weren't too happy about the computer system. And so uh, my wife, Joan, agreed to come in and help with the computers and help get them trained so that they felt more at ease with it. So, uh, but the computer system didn't work very well at first. This lady who came in uh, left some flaws in it and we had some problems with it. And uh, some of the other stores had heard that we'd put in a computer system and they would contact us for advice. And so, Sadly, we had to get back with them and let them know that there were some flaws in the system, but they were eventually ironed out, thanks to my wife, who is a whiz at, at most, most things, bookkeeping and uh, practically everything, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but anyway, she continued working here for some time in bookkeeping and uh, uh, helped to get everything uh, going as it should be, and the older ladies finally became at ease, and uh, we hired uh, another person or two for the bookkeeping department. So my wife was eventually uh, able to go back to her, her, her job of housekeeping. <laughs> but she worked many jobs in our early years of marriage. Yes, she, she continued to work, but not in the music business. We should have brought her in much earlier, I guarantee you. <laughs> so, fantastic stories from Robert. Uh, I had a really hard time uh, narrowing his section down because, I mean, he <laughs> had just story after story and uh, just some really fantastic insight, too, of his dad and how, you know, because he was there when it all started as well and, and just all of that information. But I have to say, I have to, you know, pull this out a little bit. 
his collection stories, watching him at at his age tell those stories about being attacked with a butcher knife. And I was going, eh. <laughs> I just those that story will stick with you, I think. And I love that he gave a shout out to his wife Joan and how mm. much she helped. Definitely uh, you know, with the computers and accounting and everything, it really is a family business, and you start to see that uh, more and more each generation as we go down here. Absolutely, and the other thing that occurred to me, Ashley, is the fact that there's a lot of things that we get from our parents and our grandparents, right? Um, but passion isn't usually one of them, and I think it's so awesome the passion, the level of passion for the music industry, for the, uh, the business that they have, but also for their customers, you know, and bringing music to their community. We're going to hear that throughout this whole podcast. As we hear from the newer generations, it's still that same level of intensity. And it, I, it's just so overwhelming to me. And uh, it's such a great thing to hear. Mm-hmm. So next up in the line of Aver waters that we'll be hearing from today, is Chip Averwater. Um, Chip Averwater uh, also uh, ran Amro Music for his time that he was there, and he also served as the chairman on the NAM board. Um, so, giving some love to us mm-hmm. here at NAM. Um, Chip's going to be talking about what it was like when he came into the business, the internet, and all of that kind of stuff that started showing up. So, really exciting stuff, kind of getting into the more modern age of Amro Music. Here is Chip Averwater. I, I guess all industries change and as industries go, we're probably um, uh, a little more steady and stable than, than uh, many. Uh, but we do change. Uh, we've seen a lot of styles of music come and go, <clears throat> instruments that they play that um, can change pretty quickly. So we do have to, to be uh, on our toes and willing to change. And we went through instruments that are no longer uh, popular, accordion and home organ and things like that. Have, really changed in popularity. So it does change and we have to be willing to go with it or, or we won't be here. For example, the, the internet was sort of just becoming a force. Yeah. How has that changed and, and has it had an impact on your business? I, I, it has a bit, an impact on all businesses. That's, uh, that's a very powerful force and it was kind of fun watching it develop because we really didn't know what to make of that in the beginning. There were people who said, I'm not going to bother with the internet. Other people who said, well, we'll put our basic information about our store and our hours on there. Uh, but uh, today, it's very rare to, to find a shopper for any kind of big instrument or expensive instrument who hasn't done quite a bit of homework on the internet. So uh, to ignore the internet right now would be very dangerous. Did you have to change anything as far as your, your practices when you when came with uh, the internet? Well, our basic business is the same, we're, and we're still concentrating on our region. We don't, uh, we're not trying to sell out of our region much, but we do have to, do, to be on the internet. Those people want to do their homework before they come to you, and uh, so we have to have that information up and, and uh, Give them what they want. What other sort of uh, changes have you seen as far as the industry goes? Another thing that comes to my mind is the the big box stores. 
Yeah, there have been some some pretty significant changes, particularly the big box store was a huge thing, or the chains uh, had a major impact on uh, on retailers. I think also distributors and, and manufacturers as well, because there was basically what they would call in business school is a power shift between the, in the distribution chain. So when the when the chains began, that was quite uh, quite a hit for a lot of retailers. Some retailers really felt it big time. Uh, how to adjust, they had to shift, find a new niche, and I'm happy to say that most of them did. Uh, some of them, of course, are no longer with us, unfortunately, but uh, it was a major change for our industry, there's no doubt. I think another change similar to that would be the globalization, particularly of manufacturing. Uh, now anybody who is in business is absolutely global, there's no way to avoid it. You're buying products from many other countries. Uh, it, it affected uh, retailers in that way, shifted all the traditional uh, channels of distribution and the, the lines of distribution. It affected manufacturers for sure. The U.S. manufacturers really got hit hard by it. And of course distributors are dealing with different lines of uh, distribution as well. So globalization was a big uh, impact for the industry, particularly late 90s and early 2000s. Those, both of those trends hit hard. Um, I'd be interested to hear, Chip, your, your thoughts about the, the recession that we're in and, and how you've seen that develop. You know, 20 years mm -hmm. from now, people are going to, I think, see this 10-year this period as maybe being in, affected going back to 9-11. Do, do you mm -hmm. see that as all one big sort of recession area, and how did you see it sort of develop? Well, it's hard to it's hard to pin down any causes for uh, economic things. I, I think the economists don't have a clue either, don't they? But uh, <laughs> but uh, certainly the two thousands have been challenging in terms of the economy, um, and this latest uh, the banking crisis that seems to have set this one off really affected some segments of our industry, piano in particular. Uh, I mean, when you're looking at numbers that are 20 and 30 percent off on top of down years, uh, that's pretty significant. So, but there are signs that we're coming out of it now, and I think, uh, I think we're going to be okay. I mean, we go into these things and they scare us to death because we don't know whether they're going to come back. They always come back. The, the humans need to make music is constant. And instruments may change, Styles of music may change, but people are going to continue to make music. So as long as we keep doing our job, we'll, we'll be fine. Yeah, in all of this sort of gloom as we begin this conversation, one of the things that has always impressed me is of the vitality and the excitement that you see still within the industry, even during these tough times. It's true, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of people... Uh, a lot of people are just going on as usual. They're doing their work, and if their numbers change a bit, that's okay. They're 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 doing all they can, and uh, I think anybody who does that's going to survive. Now I don't want to make it look like you're the old guy, but this is probably not your first recession either. So you know, <laughs> uh, you have that experience of it's probably going to get better. It is going to get better. It always does. Yeah, I think so. The the, the long term trend. These recessions smooth out on the long term trend, and it's. It's always gotten better, so I'm not losing a lot of sleep about it. And as far as encouraging the rest of the industry, what what sort of things do you think are are key to survival during that those times? Well, I think we have to listen to our customer, pay attention to the trends. 
Um, and as they say, retail is detail. It's a lot of details that you have to get right. And the sum of those things is what determines whether we get the sale or a competitor gets the sale or a competitive product like a big screen TV or something like that. So we have to focus on getting all those details right, make it a great experience for our customers, and then, and then we're going to make it. Everybody's going to do just fine. There's plenty of room out there. It's interesting that you should mention uh, competitive products because I, I never really thought too much about that until the last five or, five or six years. <coughs> Has that always been your way of thinking? There's competitive products as well, or is that, is that a new concept? Oh, I think that we've always had products that we uh, were competing against, uh, products from outside the, the music industry, whether it was motorcycles or uh, video games or uh, any kind of thing that uh, kids can be involved in. Of course, adults also, but the uh, market is primarily kids. So there's always something. There, there are plenty of things for people to be involved in. There's no shortage. And uh, we have to make musical instruments and playing music uh, more appealing to them. All right, everybody, that was Chip Averwater talking a little bit about his perspective on Amro Music, his family-owned and operated music store in Memphis, Tennessee, that we are celebrating today on the Music History Project, thanks to the Oral History Program here at NAM. And we're going to continue with a few more Averwaters before this uh, story is done. We're getting closer to modern times, but also going to be in incorporating some other people who have been involved with the uh, store as well coming up. But right next uh, is uh, Pat Averwater, um, that's Chip's brother, and a fantastic perspective here as, you know, different generations have different roles to play, right? As we get into more technology and uh, the, the customer doesn't usually change too much. It's my understanding from talking to various people over the years, but the expectation that they have and their own uh, education and knowledge of products definitely has changed. So stores have to be aligned with that. And I really appreciate how that develops uh, as we listen to these different generations going forward. There's a lot going on here as far as how people adapt to the changes. And uh, this is such a great example of that. I'm really happy we're able to do this. Yeah, uh, definitely a great insight. And, um, you know, I think something that both CJ and Pat mentioned was that, um, and I never thought about it this way. Obviously, I don't have a store, so I guess I would never have to think about it like this. But that kids have so many options for activities, um, and they start to talk a lot about that, um, as well as uh, the current generation will later on talk about that, too. And I, I never really thought, like, yeah, you got to compete not only with, you know, uh, other, you know, musical instruments, but also video games, sports, like all this other stuff that you just don't think are direct competitions. And, and so Pat does a really good job of talking about that in this segment, as well as the end of it, it has a fun little story of uh, uh, some goofy times at the stores. <laughs> so end it with a little bit of a laugh. So here is uh, Pat Averwater. When I first started in the business, we had uh, four stores in the Memphis area. So we had our main store, which was in, in Midtown of Memphis now, at the address we are, 2918 Poplar. And that was kind of the, the home office there. And then we had some uh, branch stores out in the territory. So we kind of witnessed the shifting of the market a little bit. where We didn't so much need the branch stores anymore. 
our product mix started to change a little bit. We were uh, full line. Uh, we had pianos to combo, the lessons, the repairs, everything. So um, the, the market tried, uh, started to shift a little bit. Um, external factors with um, the catalogs and the toll-free numbers started to come. So now we have these distant competitors that are in essence a local competitor now because somebody could just call up the phone and get the price of, of the same product that you're selling from a, from you know, way out of town. So that started to shift how um, we, we um, had to approach our businesses and we had to become a little more strategic at the time. So, and that had effect on other local competitors too. Mm. And if you didn't make the adjustments to the new economy, unfortunately, um, you know, you would be put out of business. And so we kind of witnessed through the shift in that. And, and, and so there was a lot of opportunities that came with this. If you could kind of see the foresight and you could see in, uh, the trends and the shifts and the signs that were progressing, then maybe you could make the adjustments faster than your competitors and you could be prepared a little bit better. Um, but then, of course, the internet came out, and um, you know that had to push us to new levels again. These were new challenges, something that the industry had never experienced before. And so we uh, um, just you, you had to adjust. You had to be leaner and meaner and smarter with everything that you did. Um, it just changes, and, and that's just the natural model of any industry and any business. You know, a lot of people viewed the uh, internet as a threat. Did, did you guys? Well, I think initially when you don't understand something, you view it as a threat. And, um, but until you get a little more comfortable with it, um, you start to learn certain things. So first question is, you know, how do we compete against it? What are the steps that we have to do to compete against this new, new threat? And the secondly is, do we want to use it to our advantage and, and to offer some additional services too? So. Um, yes, it was a threat. It does bring in new competitors at the, whole, at, at the same time, but there's also some opportunities for us there, too. Well said. That's really neat. It's kind of fun to document this. You know, you saw that change and that shift, and it's almost forgotten now because the Internet is everything. But there was yes. a time where oh. you guys had to supply all the information to your customers, right? They yes. weren't they weren't uh, coming in with a lot of information and that was an advantage for sure I'm guessing. Yeah, that was, um, it was an advantage and a disadvantage at the same time and the advantage was that you, in essence, you kind of controlled all the information so you could, con could, could sway the customer in the direction you needed to sway it. Um, uh, but at the same time it was a disadvantage because you had to be an expert on everything at the same time. And then the internet came out so it made all the information um, readily available to anybody that needed it. And now the customer became an expert and sometimes they're more of an expert than, than even we are. So again, it, it pushes our game up. We had to be um, uh, more studied in the products and uh, just more prepared than ever before. Yeah, I, I, one of the shifts that I saw, and I think uh, you guys um, took part in this, was just a heightening awareness to your customers of the things that you were already doing, but maybe mm -hmm. they didn't know it. You know, instrument repairs, for example, was right. one, right? I mean, that was the guy in a different cabinet or, you know, in the back storage room or something like that. But now 
it's very important for them to know that this is a service you can't get on the internet and right. we proudly have been doing that for a long time. Yeah, you do have to learn to differentiate yourself from the internet and, uh, and, and seek value wherever you can find it and, and one of the keys is the service aspect of it there. The community aspect, the service aspect, anything you can do to uh, ingrain yourself to that customer. Yeah, well said. Yeah, there's, it's really interesting to see these changes. Uh, I kind of wonder from your perspective, Pat, if the customer is different now than they were when you first started. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the, the changes for, through, uh, through the customer is so gradual that you may not notice it, but if you can take a 30-year snapshot of it, then you say, yeah, it's way different than it is now. So, you know, that's a good question. Absolutely, they're different. They're, they're, they're more knowledgeable than they've ever been. Um, they have more choices probably than they've, they've ever had, um, uh, but more importantly, the, the students or the kids have more choices on how to spend their, if you want to call it discretionary time, which is very limited. They've got so many options these days. There's so many activities in schools. There's so many activities at home. There's so many, you know, the video game, the digital world that we live in now. So all of those different activities are in essence a, a, a competitor of ours in the fact that we're competing for that child's attention and time. So. Um, uh, we have to make music as appealing as we can possibly make it for them. So the customers do change. Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So what has been your favorite aspect of, of being in the store? What do you look forward to the most <laughs> when you get there? Well, you know, um, there's a lot of things that, that help keep me motivated and it's been most enjoyable. I enjoy working with young people in their first journey through music. That, that's always very, very exciting. Um, I've got a great AMRO family that I come to, to work with every day. Um, it's actually been a very profitable business for me. I've been very blessed in that regard. Uh, but most importantly, it's, it's been the friendships that I've made in this business. Now, some of my customers, whether the band directors or just regular customers walk in the door, I have some great friends there that I've had the pleasure of working with um, and, and some of the manufacturer partners that I work with have become really good friends um, and, and my other uh, my, my re other retail friends that I depend on so much for information exchanges and helping me out and just where I can bounce an idea off these are some of my best friends now so what started as a, a purely business relationship has now turned into a long-term friendship I think I was in high school. Was, my cousin Paul was the piano mover, and so they, they you know, pulled me out of the repair shop, which was the dungeon in our downtown store down there, which I really think was a terrible hazing ritual or maybe <laughs> trying to discourage me from the business down there. But they put me on the piano truck now. Now, you have to envision Paul and I. We were the same age, and we were in high school together and in the same grade and everything. Um, Paul was... Um, uh, not the tallest man in the world, but he, he was pretty tough. He was a state championship wrestler. And uh, in me, I haven't changed a whole lot, so Paul was probably 140 pounds and I might have been 145 or 150 at the time. So we're on this piano truck. And so we had done it a few times, so we kind of had our, our job. So Paul would, you know, he would drive in the truck and he'd back it up and we'd park and then we'd get out and he would grab the dolly and run and knock on the door while I'm adjusting the ramp and getting the, the, the straps and the pads all ready to go. So 
we knock on the lady's door and, and she opens the door and Paul just shoots right in there looking for the piano. We're picking this piano up and the lady comes out and she grabs me and she, literally on the arm and she says, young man, I think you're going to need some help moving this piano. I'm going to call my husband. He just works a few blocks from here. And I, and I looked up and I said, no ma'am, we've got this. It, it, everything's going to be fine. We've got this. And just right on cue, Paul was already at the front door with that console piano on the dolly. And this lady turns around and her mouth just drops and her eyes get really big. And I know she's wondering, how in the world did this young man, you know, 140 pounds, get this piano on there? Of course, it's a matter of technique. You lift one side and you throw the dolly under and you slide it But uh, I can only imagine the stories that she told after that day. So that was one of my very favorite and earliest um, remembrances. So uh, one more story, um, maybe you can use it, maybe not. But So after I graduated college, um, I was working in the store. Now I'm on the sales floor. So um, doing the retail sales and I'm doing the, the purchasing of accessories and music and all that. And my brother Jim was actually in the store. He's one right above me is when he was working in the music store. So one day we're in there working and one of our old professional players comes in named uh, Mr. Johnny Davis and he was coming in to say that his house had been broken into and they took his prized shilky trumpet. And so while he's telling us the story, co coincidentally, a young man walks in carrying a gig bag with a prized shilky trumpet in it. And so uh, Jim, he walks up and, and they start this tug of war over this gig bag and of course now we have this young man probably in his 20s tug, doing a tug of war with a senior gentleman here so we knew he was going to win so I ran to the front door to try to, to block him because I knew he was going to get ready to run out the door. My brother Jim had run out the back door and locked the front door behind me so this perpetrator could not get out. Well that's information I needed to know at the time. <laughs> I didn't know that so of course, here comes the perpetrator with the trumpet. And so, you know, I try to stop him like this. And so, um, being the fourth of four, you know, I, I kind of grew up having to fend for myself. So we get into a tussle. And so I've got him in a headlock, you know. And I know this move because my brother's perfected it on me for many, many years. So I'm down on the floor. Now I'm dressed in slacks and I got a tie on. And we're down on the floor. So about the time my other brother comes in. So now we're wrestling this guy down on the floor down. Thinking, this is just insane. But we didn't know any better. But uh, we got the trumpet back and we held the perpetrator till the police got there. And so we still laugh about that story today. Oh, we're down there with our, our ties on. We're wrestling around on the, you know, underneath a Steinway piano, wrestling this guy down in there. So that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was Pat Avalwater as we continue the Music History Project dedicated to Amro Music in Memphis. And the next generation is up at bat. This is very exciting. We're learning a lot and uh, sort of progressing in history this afternoon, which is really a lot of fun. So up next, we're going to be hearing from uh, CJ and Nick Abelwater. And I just want to say that these guys make such a great team. You know, I think their great-grandfather would be awfully proud of them because they work so well together. They nurture their staff in such a meaningful way just as their fathers and grandfather had done before them. And it's really, really neat to see. 
Um, so I'm, I'm really excited that we have this chance. And also a special thanks to Nick, who's helped us with some of the interviews in preparation for today's um, podcast, which has been really meaningful to me. Yeah, uh, definitely. You can see their dads and their granddad and you can see all the generations before them definitely come through with them uh, and some great stories. So we're going to hear first from CJ and he's going to talk a little bit more kind of about product lines and the internet and that, you know, that evolving change that he's going through as well as uh, he's going to touch on a little bit about the band directors and band night and what that means for him. Uh, and then we're also going to hear from Nick, uh, who's going to have some good insight of something a little bit more current that we've been dealing with, which is the pandemic of 2020. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy both CJ and Nick Averwater. Uh, I remember going in at a young age, 12, 13, middle school, high school, kind of on school breaks, uh, summer breaks. I remember going in, just helping out here and there. I think my first job was replacing a toilet flapper that was breaking. Uh, after that, I graduated, was promoted to repricing individual sheet music. Back in that day, you know, we had rows and rows, hundreds and hundreds of sheets. It would take you a week, but the price would go up five or ten cents, and now you got to get the price gun and go one at a time all the way through. So uh, after that, I think I helped out on the sales floor quite a bit, and that's really where the passion came from me because you were able to see these kids come in and pick out their first instrument and, and to see their eyes and their parents' eyes when they've made that first note, that, there was something very special about that. So continued to work through that, uh, went to college, grad school, uh, played trumpet in high school. We all learned play piano as young, we were young, played trumpet in high school, learned to play guitar, went on to college, grad school, and then uh, when I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do, the, the passion of it all kind of just came to me. So it was a pretty easy transition there. I wanted to do something that, that, that not only benefited me, but also other people, but also the entire community. So it was kind of a no-brainer growing up in the industry and seeing that passion each and every day on the sales floor. That's really cool. So yeah. after college, you officially sort of started mm -hmm. full-time? Yeah, I went and got my um, master's degree, MBA, spent a year doing that, and then started full-time after that. Well, what year was that? That was 2003, 2004. So, cool. yeah. And then since then, worked just about every position. You know, one thing I do have a lot of respect for my dad and my uncle for is they, um, they hold you, hold you um, accountable for everything. We have, we have a set of standards that as family members we have to live by. We're paid a very um, modest salary to start, and we work our way up. We, don't rep we never reported to them. We reported to the manager of the department that we were working in. And it was made clear to them, you treat them like you would anybody else, which I, I think allows us to learn a lot more about these departments. Uh, but it also uh, gains respect with your other team members because they know that you were there and walked in their shoes and understand how all the pieces fit together. Yeah, that must be critical. I think it is very critical. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah very interesting. Yeah. So how have you seen... Um, since 2003, being there full time, have um, have the product lines changed a whole lot? Or are you pretty steady with? We're pretty steady with that. I mean, we we um, certainly appreciate all the support that the vendors provide. I think that's one very unique thing about our industry is that it's very much a team effort. The vendors and the retailers are all in it together and trying to find ways to succeed with each other. So um, you know, there have been some improvements and that sort of thing. Sure. Um, the, the level of support, I think, continues to get better and better each year, the partnerships that we have with these vendors. 
It's also interesting to gain your perspective because I'm so used to older people who the first thing they say is, well, the internet changed everything. Mm -hmm. Well, the internet was already pretty much in sure. play when you started, but I'm it sure it's quite developed uh, since you first sure. started. Tell me how is that a resource to the company? Um, I think it's, it, you know, it allows us to get our message out. We call on a lot of very small rural schools too, in addition to the Memphis area. Um, and so it allows them to learn about our company in ways that they couldn't do because most of them aren't going to make the trip into Memphis. Most of, so it gives them a source for that. You know, it's interesting, uh, the internet has been, of course, a challenge, but you think back to the things that my great-grandfather and grandfather and father went through, it's just a different player. You know, they competed with Sears, they competed with some of the big box stores carrying instruments. So the internet's just another one of these mediums. We've survived these and, you know, it's just another, another player in the market, isn't it? Yeah, well said. That's yeah. so true. I was going to ask you, you brought up sure. the, the um, relationship with the band directors sure. in, in rural areas around mm -hmm. you guys. Tell me a little bit about how you see your service there. Again, I think we're, we're a partner with them. And I think at the end of the day, our goals align with theirs and that we want as many music makers out there as possible. So it's our job to go in there and help them spend more, find ways to spend more time on the podium, less time doing the busy work behind the scenes. So we try to partner with them any way that we can, whether that's providing a good quality instrument that they're not going to have to spend time adjusting or fixing, whether that's picking up repairs and dropping them off for them, providing other resources, guidance, assistance, that sort of thing. Very well said. Um, I'd also like to ask you a little bit, sure. I know you've had um, first-hand experiences going out to like uh, band night at, mm -hmm. at a school sure. and um, in thinking, while, while you tell me this answer, thinking about explaining this also to people who aren't in the industry, sure. you know, because ultimately what I think you're going to wind up telling me about is your own passion and how cool it is when a child picks up an instrument, sure. right? So just, if you would, just tell me what that's like going to a, a school night. Um, yeah, so uh, the school nights obviously are there to serve the parents, to make it easy for them and the band directors to make sure they have the right, right instruments. It's, there's a level of excitement, uh, nervousness for sure, because parents are just, these parents are new to the band. They've never played in bands sometimes. Uh, the kids kind of are trying to learn what to expect. So um, if you're able to get up and, and encourage them, I, it, it's tremendous. There's just every, every parent leaves there with a big smile on their face and their kids do as well. You know, so just making it as easy and pain-free and um, convenient as possible certainly helps with that. Do you have any particular favorite memories of an experience on band night? On band night? Um, you know, I don't know that I do. I think just the, the satisfaction of leaving seeing all the smiling faces and the band director saying, wow, that was easy, and knowing that he's got 50 or 60 kids that are going to show up tomorrow and they're going to be playing their first note. You know, I think that, that is uh, leaving at the end of that. You're exhausted, you're loading up, but I think that's what kind of drives you to do the next one. Well said, yeah. And you've provided a service that I don't sure. think everybody does, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, it's after hours, it's yeah. not in the store. You know, this is costing your company some sure. effort and money, yeah. but it's a resource that is. is now helping to, uh, mm -hmm. to establish a, a strong relationship, sure. too, I'm guessing. Absolutely. You know, the Ed Reps are really kind of the hero there because they spend, you know, they'll be on the road at 8 a.m. calling on schools, and then they don't leave a school until 9 p.m. that night. So they're putting in a lot of hours during that time period just to make sure they have everything that they need. So. 
Yeah, well said. I think that's so important, you know, and, and maybe oftentimes we, it's so, such a part of your regular business and sure. such a part of our industry, we don't pause to think this is really the heart yeah. of it. You're absolutely right. Yeah. We got to get them playing. We do. That's <laughs> what we do. How do we get more? Yeah. And, um, another source of passion sure. for you, I know, is selling. Do you have any favorite <laughs> stories of uh, a favorite <laughs> sale or? Favorite? Oh, man, I'd have to think about that. Like your first one or something that's important to you? Um, you know, I think any time that you get the grandparent that comes in that says, you know what, I bought it, my child got an instrument for you guys, and now I'm here to get a trumpet for my grandchild. That, that, those are just heartwarming to me. You know, you walk around the, away from those feeling really good and, and kind of feeling the legacy and the history and everything else. So after uh, college, uh, did you come to the store right away? And if so, what year do you consider your start there? Yeah, for the most part, I, I came uh, right out. I, I did take a, you know, an executive internship type position with Target. Um, and if you ever want to see like retail on steroids, go work at a place like Target or Walmart or one of those places for a period of time, because, uh, you know, I thought working Saturdays was kind of tough. And then you hear about working, you know, Black Friday in Target. So I did do that for a period of time. It's a wonderful organization. But I, again, I just felt called to be back in the family business. Uh, so I, I graduated, I guess it would have been um, from, from graduate school in December of 2012. And I started uh, in January of 2013, uh, like January 5th or 6th, got moved home. And uh, it's, it's been a wonderful adventure since then. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. And, you know, one of the things I think that was really uh, propelling um, in popularity, and I know AMRO took advantage of it, was the social media. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your outreach, because I know you've been a part of that. Yeah, a little bit. We have a, a wonderful team here at AMRO Music, and we all kind of contribute in that way. But, you know, social media, we feel like is a piece in this bigger puzzle, which is both the opportunity to reflect your business and your culture to your customers, but also an opportunity to communicate with your customers. And so we want there to be continuity between what the customer experiences in the store and the conversations we have in the store, coupled with our website, coupled with our social media, our YouTube page, whatever you have, whatever have you on that. And so we do feel like it's an important piece of the puzzle for us um, because for a lot of customers, they interact with our social media page, with our webpage before they ever interact with us in person. And so we want to ensure that the quality and the experience they have there is reflective of what we try to give them here in the store. Very, very cool. And since 2012, what do you consider some of the milestones or important events that have occurred uh, as far as the business goes? Well, certainly none more significant than, than 100 years. And, you know, for us, I, I don't, I'm not sure if we take this, this tremendous milestone approach. You know, we really try to live by the mantra of incremental improvements. You know, we try to approach everything we do with how can we improve it 2% better, 2% better. And, you know, I, I'm really excited with some of the things that we are doing using new media, using, you know, in-house video content to better communicate with customers and with these webinars. And, you know, we have a podcast now. We have all of these things that I feel like are helping us to be, um, you know, the, the first thing our customers interact with. But I look at all of those as just incremental improvements for us. You know, we, we look at everything and say, okay, we did it 
that way last year? What can we do to make it 2% better? And so I look at our after hours. I mean, that's been a, a tremendous um, way for us to interact with, with music educators and perhaps help offer some insights through the pandemic. So, you know, that started as a webinar when school shut down in April and we just got, we created a Zoom account like everybody did. And we got a couple of panelists on there and we said, hey, let's, let's talk about recruiting this week. And we'd have, you know, educators jump on and hear how these folks are doing recruiting. And then the next week it was another thing. And the evolution of that turned, you know, that's what turned into the podcast. Now we were creating this content and it's like, okay, what's the next incremental step in this project? And the podcast seemed to fit that um, objective that we have. And so, you know, as I look back of where we are today and where we have been, I see just all these small incremental improvements rather than, um, you know, these big projects, people see the webinars and people see the podcasts and, and you know, the post-pandemic planning guide and the considerations document. But, um, you know, for me in my seat, I see the entirety of the process and just the incremental baby steps that, that got us to uh, where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. What are your um, thoughts and memories of the very early part of the pandemic? What was that like? Well, I'll be the first to admit that I was probably one of the slower people to respond and appreciate the gravity of what was going on. I mean, I remember sitting down with my dad and and even I think a lot of people, I mean, we all kind of smile and think that the mantra was two weeks to flatten the curve, two weeks, right? And here we are 18 months later, still trying to get this darn virus under control. And so I think for me, it was... And, and, and even here in the Mid-South, it happened, the shutdowns happened during spring break. And so it was, hey, we're going to tack a week on the spring break and we're going to tack a week on the spring break. And then I remember a university in our area announced, hey, we're not coming back this semester. And then it was like, oh, oh, wow. Wow. That was significant. And they had the foresight to see that, you know, that this pandemic is going to be with us for a while. Um, and, and then I think as we interacted with educators, we realized how many questions there were. And that, that's really what brought on the webinars that we were doing. We remember talking with an experienced, experienced band director. His name is Mr. Barry Trowball. He's just retired from Munford High, very accomplished. And we remember having a conversation with him and he was saying, I don't know how I'm going to do these things. And we thought, wow, if, if, if this experienced educator of 35 years is having these questions, what's a second year teacher thinking right now? What's a first year teacher thinking right now? And so, um, just trying to navigate all of those initial responses. How are we going to teach band online? I mean, that's a big question. How are we going to teach orchestra online? So just trying to navigate those early, early questions. And I think our, the shock to the system that we all experienced all while trying to figure out how to work from home too. So here we are. Right. The, uh, the state of Tennessee also uh, disallowed any uh, customers coming into the stores, right? We were, we were shut down for a very short period of time. I think particularly compared to like California, where you all are located, where the NAM offices are. So I think our store was closed to the general public for 40 days. And what we would do is rotate one because we were considered essential because we worked with schools. And so we met the definition of essential. So we had one person working in each department each day. And so we would have a skeleton staff of about eight people on site. And, you know, one in accounting, one in credit, one in band office, one in repair and just kind of rotate. So they were the only person holding down the, the fort and then everybody else was working from home. Yeah, very, 
very crazy. I yeah. love talking to you about this. And, and when I do, I, I'm thinking about um, that rich history of AMRO for which I'm very proud to, uh, to honor and celebrate in an upcoming episode of our podcast. Um, Thank you. Using interviews, going back to your founder and thinking about, well, you guys, you made it through the Great Depression. <laughs> you guys made it through World War II, a bunch of wars, a bunch of recessions. Uh, uh, unbelievable staying power. What do you contribute that to? Oh, that, that's so easy. It's the people here at AMRO. I mean, we have just been so fortunate to have incredible people here at AMRO um, who, who, you know, we have what's called the fundamentals, our AMRO way, and they just come to work every day trying to embrace and represent the AMRO fundamentals. And, um, you know, they, they make coming to work, quite frankly, they make it pretty easy and a lot of fun. And so we've just found that if you hire really great people, give them the tools to be successful. And then as a boss, just get out of their way. Um, things usually turn out pretty good. And so we do our best to do that. So once again, that was CJ and Nick Averwater rounding out hearing from the Averwaters. Um, you've now heard from all of the ones that we have in the collection. And it's just so cool to hear multiple generations of a family music store. It's like, mm. You're, you never get to hear this kind of stuff all at once. So it's just really amazing. Um, and next up, we're going to hear something even more amazing. And that's from some employees of Amro Music um, who are, as all of the Averwaters said, the key to the success of the store. Definitely. And all of them that I've ever met always felt a part of that family. And um, that's a really important and endearing element of the AMRO story to me. So uh, I'm so glad that we have an opportunity here at this podcast to hear from a few of them. We're going to start off uh, this little segment of three um, with a gentleman who had been at AMRO for over 60 years, Vernon Drain. Uh, we heard from Vernon in our podcast about Sun Records because in addition to working at AMRO, uh, he had a lot of other hats during his long life, uh, one of which was a backup singer for a couple of tunes um, recorded at Sun there in Memphis, including The Midnight Man, <laughs> um, which always makes me smile because when I hear that record, I hear Vernon proudly singing in the background that he's the midnight, the midnight, the midnight man. Uh, <laughs> and of course, he developed these amazing skills at AMRO over the years, one of which was being a band instrument repair technician. You know, so, so often I think that that's just sort of a skill you have to have you know, almost like being a musician, you know, you just have to have that. Um, and here's a guy who learned it just sitting at the bench and over the years perfecting it to become quite a master uh, repairman. So uh, really some compelling stories. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, 60 plus years, it's, I mean, that's astounding. <laughs> he has memories of mill. <laughs> like, <laughs> Who else can say that? <laughs> um, and you've also probably heard his name throughout this entire episode because uh, several of the Averwaters have alluded to him just here and there because he's mm. been around for so long and he's uh, just a fixture at Amro Music. Uh, so this next segment, we're going to hear from first from Vernon, a little bit about um, what kind of guy Mill was and a little bit of his background. And then we're going to hear from a uh, piano salesman um, or worked in piano sales at AMRO, uh, and that's Sandra Miller. And then we're going to hear from Trish Montgomery, who uh, started working 
there in accounting and has been there for quite some time as well. So three definitely key employees, not the only employees by, by any means, but uh, three three of them that are really make up what AMRO really is all about. So uh, here they are and hope you guys enjoy. I was going to ask you about Mill Abelwater. What sort of guy did you find him to be? This guy was an amazing person. He started this business like uh, giving piano lessons, and he'd written a particular book, which Bob told you about, I'm pretty sure, that uh, he was using with his students. And this was back in uh, 1921 when he started, and uh, the Depression hit, and a lot of people didn't have any money, but they'd come down for their lessons and all, and they'd bring him produce, you know, like uh, tomatoes, whatever they had. And of course, that's how he uh, existed during a lot of that period because they'd moved down here from uh, Cincinnati, I think he was originally from. And uh, they didn't live too far from downtown, so they walked down to work and walked back home each day. And uh, they, they came through some pretty hard times and, and did very well. And of course, he was a very frugal fellow after that. But he had an amazing thing. He had a charisma about him that you know, somebody could come in and just be mad at the world at him about something. And just in a minute or two, he'd have them eaten out of his hands. It soothed them right quickly. And had no problem selling anything uh, because of the, the, his general manner, you know. And I learned a lot from him. <laughs> of course, I ended up basically the same way. People would come in, you know, to, and uh, I learned real quick, if you're going to be a good salesman, you shut up and listen to what they say. And if I ask a particular question and you know exactly what they're doing, you can answer the question but make it short. And uh, my, my closing thing used to be a lot of times that people would be looking, well, I can't quite make up my mind between this and this and this. And I, I'd ask them, I said, well, uh, what kind of furniture do you have now? He says, well, we're in the process of buying a bunch of early American and I like this early American piano. I said, I think we can deliver that tomorrow if you want it today. It was sold. I mean, that did it. And I had a particular thing. I had a man that came in. Uh, he wanted to buy a double French horn for his son. And uh, he was a salesman for a, a television outfit. And uh, he was having a little difficulty, uh, you know, making the ends meet there because a lot of us went through that along after the Depression. So he came in and talked to me about a French horn, and I told him, uh, you know, price and everything. He said, man, that's awful high, and I don't know whether I can do it or not. So as it happened, I called him all several days later and asked him, I said, uh, what, have you decided to do anything on this French horn? He says, no. He says, I'm still in doubt. I said, well, let me bring it out and let you see the horn, and uh, uh, your son's already seen it, and he's crazy about it. And he says, well, come ahead. So I walked out to the, uh, the, the store where he was, and he was waiting on a lady, and he was moving to this and to that and two or three other things. And uh, the lady kept saying, says, I just can't make up my mind. I just, and, and, you know, kept going. And uh, I stepped up. I says, ma'am, I'm from the RCA factory. Possibly I could help you, you a little bit here. And he looked at me like, hey, what are you doing? You know, and he backed off. I said, tell me this, why are you looking at two different uh, styles of tele uh, televisions? Says, well, uh, says, I have two daughters and I got to buy uh, each of them a television. I said, well, 
okay, I bet one of your daughters is sort of outgoing. And she, oh, yeah, she's a live wire. And I said, the other one's kind of, yeah, she hardly ever says much. I said, well, that's simple. I said, all you need to do is buy your outgoing daughter, this one in the modern style, and this one over here, and your traditional would be perfect for your other daughter. She said, you know, I hadn't thought of that. I think I'll take them. <laughs> I said, sir, well, I think you need to talk to the lady now and get her delivery set up. He says, I guess I've got to buy that French horn. Now I said, no, you don't really, but. Uh. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what it's like for you to be at the store for the 100th anniversary and, and what you attribute the success to. Of the, of the company being in business 100 years? Well, we just have unbelievably great ownership. Fourth generation. Um, we have wonderful people working here. We, uh, we have uh, great customers coming in. I, I don't know. It's just, it's a business that attracts great people who love music and um i guess it's just i don't know it's just it's just a fun place to be it's a great experience so i'm celebrating uh this next what yes next month september i'm celebrating 26 years of the with the company out of 100 that they've been in business <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome how wonderful that's really, really neat to know. I right. mean, you're, people are there for a good reason if you're there that long, right? Right. You know, it's really amazing, Dan, because, you know, I recall the first day I came to work here. And uh, every day that I come to AMRO, I feel as if I'm starting a new job again. That's how exciting and how rewarding and what a great experience it is to work with this company. So that's really, really neat. And I'm sort of curious, um, what was your first position? Was it always on sp specific to the Steinway brand? Yes. I, I, when I started here, well, I purchased a Steinway from here uh, several years ago and uh, before I came to work here. So I, I guess it was just a natural since I owned a Steinway and I had previous experience previous keyboard experience for probably three years. So it was just almost a natural fit for me. And that's when Chip, of course, was here, Chip Averwater, and he was expanding the store. I've been through a few expansions here. <laughs> so uh, he was expanding the store and building the Steinway room. So at that point is when they asked me, would I you know, come to work here? So um, I recall the interview with Chip when we were sitting in the parking lot and he said, well, Sandra, when are you going to start to work for us? And I said, well, I don't want to go back to work. And here I am 26 years later. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> well, something is drawing you there. <laughs> oh, it's, it's just a wonderful place. I have people come in all the time. They say, oh, we'd like to have your job. It seems like so much fun. <laughs> so when you communicate that with customers, I believe it's contagious. 
your enthusiasm for what you do and the product you're you're representing and the company you're representing is contagious. And I believe that customers catch that uh, enthusiasm and that uh, the being contagious with that. So my first real career was probably in the hotel industry. And when I left the hotel industry after about 10 years, I was trying to find what I wanted to do. And a friend of mine was here and got me on as a fall season and the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. About what year was that that you started? I started here July 1991. I'm celebrating my 30th year here. Is that right? That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, so tell me a little bit about your first impression of the store. Well, it was during the fall, so it was quite crazy at first. And they were going through their first real migration to computer systems from a manual system. So we were not only going through the fall, we were doing a not necessarily a conversion computer system. So uh, it, it was a little crazy, uh, but I learned to love it. <laughs> and so what was your first roles there, your first projects or, or position? Well, that was my first project. When I started here, they were doing the, the conversion. So I was just hired uh, temporary data entry. I, w- I was taking the manual data and putting it into the computer. Um, and th- that was my first job. I gotcha. Wow. Very interesting. And tell me a little bit about um, those early days for you as far as getting to know the staff and, of course, the family. Uh, At that time, uh, Bobby Water had retired. Um, uh, Ronnie Averwater was the president. Chip was the vice president. Um, They only had one accounts payable, one accounts receivable person. And then I was the data entry. Um, they did have a um, accounting manager slash controller. Uh, uh, Pat was here. He was over the band department. Um, and that was the only family in in this store. Now their sister Joy, Bob and uh, Ronnie's sister Joy ran our Raleigh store. Uh, So she was involved quite a bit. So once again, that was a few longtime employees of Amro Music, uh, Vernon Drain, then Sandra Miller, followed by Trish Montgomery. Very cool to hear from them. A different side of the Amro story, but a very, very important one. Absolutely. And I'm always so grateful to people, employees like these three that took the time to share their thoughts for this collection because it really adds sort of the salt and pepper to me uh, of that whole feeling of what the music industry is about. This last segment is um, a very famous guy that came out of Memphis, Tennessee named Booker T. Jones. You probably know him best for a recording he did in the early 60s called Green Onions, uh, the master of the Hammond B3 organ for sure. You know, it's interesting and a little ironic at this very moment, I'm actually reading a book about Stax Records. And even though I interviewed him, I'm learning a lot from this book. Uh, One important element is just how young he was when he started recording. He was a teenager 
and the rest of the uh, the group, the MGs, uh, which are basically the house band for Stacks there in Memphis, had to wait for him to get out of high school before they could start recording, um, <laughs> which I think is kind of telling of how young he was. But I just I love the fact that he uh, saved up money from the gigs that he had, as well as the royalties he got from Green Onions that when he read. Uh, when he um, graduated from high school, he went on to college because that was important to his grandfather who went and his father who went to college. And even though he had this uh, obviously aspiring and already popular uh, career as a musician, he still wanted to be educated generally, not just focusing on music, although he learned about composition and some other things that he would later use in his career, but he also wanted to have a general uh, understanding and education, which I th really thought was very compelling. And I think it comes across when you hear him speak. We're only going to have a little segment here because this is the, the teaser I was telling you about earlier. Um, there's a little part here connected to AMRO that uh, some of the uh, the current folks at uh, AMRO only recently learned about uh, thanks to this interview. So uh, I'm really excited about that. My first B-flat clarinet bought at Amro Music that my father paid time on, I think it cost $126, was my first real connection to music. I had the drum, I had the ukulele, those were nice, but my physical <coughs> body and my physical self began to be connected to music through that clarinet. And uh, I like to think that I was born as a B-flat person because of that clarinet being a B-flat clarinet. And I thought B-flat was the, the key for music because, you know, when you play that thing, you play a C, it's actually a B-flat. I didn't know that then. I didn't know that there was, you know, different relationships between the keys. And I thought that's how music was put together. That, I thought that was the basic note for music. So I would play that note, and I learned it. I got my first lesson on it, and I played a song called Skokian on that clarinet. And my dad took me around to the barber shops because he was proud of me. He wanted people to hear his kid playing music. Uh, but the B-flat clarinet was my first musical, real musical instrument, and I still miss it so much. Um, I, gave, I gave, away, gave away my trombone, I gave away my tenor sax, I gave away my flute, and uh, sent them down to New Orleans after the flood. But now I am going to be in the market for uh, another reed instrument. I, I, I need to do that. But yeah, B-flat. Then I realized after I got some education that the real world of music is the world of C. Bach. Bach's well-tempered clavier is in C. And the Western world is, is a world of C. C is the home key for, for the music world. <laughs> Didn't know that. All right, you guys. So that was such a fantastic episode. I had, I have to just say behind the scenes, I had so much fun listening to all of these interviews. Um, like I said in the beginning, I now feel like I'm part of their family, even mm. though I've never met them. <laughs> I hope they don't mind. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll see them at the NAMM show and I'll have to, you know, ask them a few more follow-up questions, but uh, just so fantastic to hear the story. Uh, of all, three, of all four generations and really hear from the beginning of how this started. And it's not, you know, 
two generations past of telling the story of what they think it is. You're really hearing it from each person that got to experience it. Um, and I think just the staying power is fantastic because each generation has dealt with their own ups and downs of whether it was the depression, whether it was, you know, World War II, uh, you know, certain economic issues, the internet. I mean, they've all dealt with it. And so, you know, even now as we're all going through uh, our ups and downs, you realize this is something that just happens and you kind of just have to keep riding that wave and, uh, and uh, everything should be okay at the end. So, mm. but just really great stories. Really had a great time with this one. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I totally agree. This has been a fantastic episode. And, you know, one of the factors of including Booker T there wasn't just to tell that little fun story that the first instrument he had was a, a clarinet he got at AMRO. Um, but it's really to tell the impact. You know, we could do a whole episode now on all of the young musicians who first played an instrument thanks to AMRO. And maybe some of them went on to great stardom. And maybe some of them are now bankers and lawyers and car salesmen and, you know, enjoying their life and, and having music as a part of it, even if it wasn't something that they did for a living. Um, and that I think is the real joy of what AMRO has given all of us. Uh, and that is music to the young people. You know, I, I have told probably everybody in, in this episode when I interviewed them that they have the envious position of being there when a child makes a sound for the first time in an instrument, knowing that they can do it, being empowered by that feeling. And I, I'm just so overjoyed that we can share that and express that to our listeners today on this podcast, because that is such a compelling part of why we do what we do as an industry. Very well said. Well, congratulations to AMRO on 100 years in business. Here's to 100 more. And thank you, everyone, for listening or watching on NAM.org. We will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode of the Music History Project. And until then... Bye-bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.